Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Oh, hey, it's Cindy. It's so nice to have you here. We're talking about Martin Sexton today, who is an artist that I met in college when uh, I was in Boston. He was a big deal back then, and he's a big deal now. Uh, But it would be so cool when Marty would stop by WERS and uh, come and perform in studio and then go play a headlining show at the Orpheum that night. We felt like actual rock stars when Martin Sexton graced us with his presence back then. Martin Sexton's career was actually built by his work as a street musician on the Boston scene in the 80s and early 90s. His audience knows him for being a connector by making them part of the magic he, the performer, creates on stage. On the street, he would use tricks like strategically placing himself in an area that would bottleneck a crowd and keep people around with delightful audience participation and soaring imaginative vocal aerobics like imitating a flute or a saxophone or singing into a vocal processor like his hero Peter Frampton. All the while, Sexton, who goes by Marty, was writing incredible music. The tricks made them listen, but the songs made them stay. Marty's from a big family, 12 kids in Syracuse, New York, featuring different orientations, occupations, political views, and just plain differing opinions. From that structure, he's learned how to get along, how to love, and how to talk to people he disagrees with. His message of unity has been going strong since his street musician days, and it's ever-present on his new EP, 2020 Vision. The EP was born out of Marty's pandemic silver lining of being forced off the road, and into his Saranac Lake, New York home with his family. It all started with a treehouse he and his son had been meaning to build for four years. That sparked a song, and then more songs followed, with a song about calling on unity in America, a song about the opioid epidemic particularly prevalent during the pandemic. He's been following his bliss his whole career, which includes a stop at a major record label. In fact, his time at Atlantic Records in the late 90s and early 2000s might be the most unusual and drama-free experiences among his singer-songwriter peers who were living major label nightmares at a very strange time in music history. Enjoy this interview with Martin Sexton. We'll take a listen to a song from the new EP. This is Calling on America. And then we'll get to our conversation with Marty on Basic Folk. Around this world And I've seen great beauty With open eyes And boys and girls Yes I've seen My share of ugly hating But I still say I've seen more of a sense Of hope, love and Decency, yeah Love and decency Call in America Cause you got to Know Your word on equality, you sweet land of liberty. Don't let them tear you down. Don't let them tear you down. Don't let them tear you down. Martin Sexton, this is such an honor. Thank you so much for doing the podcast. Thanks for having me, Cindy. It's a pleasure to be with you today. 
You grew up in Syracuse, New York, a huge family. You were the 10th of 12 children. Um, And it also seems like your siblings have very different viewpoints from each other, different experience. You've got liberals, conservatives, Mm -hmm. gay, straight, Barbra Streisand fans and Beatles fans. (laughs) You got it. Uh, What can you attribute about your personality and the ability to get along well with others and having grown up with so many people and so many different types of personalities? Right into the fire, eh, Cindy? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's a great question, and I'm happy to answer it Um, because I feel blessed with um, the upbringing that I had. It sort of prepared me for the world we're, we're living in now where... You know, my family, as you mentioned, you know, I had a sort of Jimmy Carter, Democrat mom and a Reagan Republican father. And uh, my siblings are split down the middle. Some are gay, some are straight, some are conservative, some are Democrats, some are, you know, apolitical. And um, some are, you know, wealthier than others. Some are older than others. It's so it's a great cross section of America. And now that I have in-laws and stuff, I have, you know, people of color in the family and just people of all kinds of backgrounds. And I remember every night we'd be at the dinner table, me and my 11 siblings and my parents, and somebody would always bring up something, a hotbed issue, and we'd all argue and, 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 and disagree or agree. But by the end of the argument, sometime between like dinner and like dessert, we all were reminded that we're family and, and we, we respected one another and, and we didn't call each other names and we didn't like, I mean, occasionally a cup might have been thrown down the table, <laughs> but by the end of the meal, we remembered we're family and we love each other and we still get together now, you know, at whether it's at my party on the 4th of July up here in the woods or um, on Zoom meetings every Saturday night. So it's, it's this cool example, I think. My family is a great little microcosm of people of different views who can respect one another and mm. and love one another and disagree with one another. Tell me about these Saturday night Zooms. Well, this is one of these silver linings of COVID. Um, I think my family is closer now because of it, because because everybody was in lockdown and this Zoom format became so popular. One of my sisters said, hey, why don't we do a Zoom call for just the siblings every Saturday night? So she's been doing it ever since. And, and, and out of it comes this connection you know everyone doesn't join every week but we're closer now as a result because we meet every saturday and just talk about whatever's going on and and then and their kids lives or their Mm -hmm. lives or in the world or and as a result um we're closer than we ever have been thank you you know that that's one of those weird benefits of COVID 19. what's the age range between the siblings uh let's see well my mom had her first baby in the early 50s and her last baby in the early 70s. Wow. Okay. So, so like a 20 year. Yeah. 20 year difference. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, so your parents also instilled, uh, believe it or not, strong Catholic beliefs with a family oh, of yeah. 12. Um, what mm-hmm. did that look like in reality and how did that impact your connection to the spiritual? It's funny. I used to say I'm a spiritual person in spite of my Catholic upbringing because I was <laughs> I kind of hated on the church for a while, but I now I kind of see it in a a buffet a cafeteria style you know like because there was a lot of good community in the church um, most of what was said in a mass would just went in one ear and out the other for me, but the the basic um, principles and um, the basic morals of Christianity Judaism. Um, Buddhism, of uh, um, Muslim faith, Native American, you know, great spirit. I I think they all kind of are going for the same thing, you know, at the end of the day, I think. And so I sort of extracted a little bit of that. I'm kind of culturally a Catholic. You know, I I, I like some of the uh, traditions, certainly the holidays, uh, the coming together of family at Christmas, um, midnight mass. I I enjoy that. When we were over in Italy, year and a half ago, we, we, they're so into it over there. And it was just refreshing to see people who were so celebratory about their religion. So I hope that answers the question. I, I, mm. I'm still a spiritual guy, but not, not in the school of, of Jesus, but, but I, I, I respect 
the teachings of Jesus, the teachings, the teachings of Allah, of Buddha, of uh, of all the, you know, the world mm. icons. Yeah. Music was not a huge part of your early upbringing other than your dad singing in the church. Um, but could you talk about what it was like for you to first discover music um, on the radio through an old Beatles vinyl? What did it feel like to connect with music at first? And where do you feel that connection now? Well, at first it was like so visceral. You know, as a kid, I, I remember sneaking up to the attic to listen to my older brother's records. And he had Frampton Comes Alive, and I put the headphones on and heard that audience. <sighs> and and then the first licks of Do You Feel Like We Do, um, that kind of lit my fire, you know. And so then I went searching, and I went down to the basement, and I found an old box of old vinyls, and I saw that. You went from the attic down to the basement. I did, yeah. So metaphorical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because like... The newer records were up in the attic, you know, the current records of like the mid 70s, mm. late 70s when I was like okay. 10. And um, so then there, there was a box of 45s and, and LPs down in the basement. And I remember seeing that Green Apple and uh, Beatles Abbey Road and it was totally scratched up. But I put it on our old turntable and just fell in love with songs and rock and roll. And, and it, I was like a sponge, you know. And from that day, you know, I went out and I went out and listened to Stevie Wonder and and Fleetwood Mac and and all that stuff and even my mom's like Perry Como records you know just dug music as a kid and and now that I do it for a living I'm not so much that sponge I'm I'm more of a reflector now I think mm. um, but I never want to lose that ability to receive how do you so keep it's, that it's funny yeah I don't know I, I I've known like professional athletes who don't really follow sports mm-hmm. like I knew some NFL guys who uh, were great at what they did and were stars in their own right, and but didn't really follow football. And I feel kind of like that guy. Like, I don't really follow music like you might think. You know, I don't have, like, a current stack of vinyl that I'm listening to this week. I, I, I still have an appetite for music, but not as as I did as a child. That seems pretty normal, though. Mm. Yeah. It's like you're when you're a kid, you're, like, seeking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I get a lot of music live, too. Like when I'm on mm-hmm. tour, there'll be somebody else on the bill, maybe somebody supporting me. Or if I'm at a festival, I can see whoever's on the lineup. And mm-hmm. I do. I hear a lot of live music in my work, uh, which is back. Thank you, universe. <laughs> you have a very crazy, scary, amazing vocal range. Um, mm. When did you first recognize that you could sing, and what has the evolution of your relationship to your voice been like? Well, as a kid, it was like a new toy at Christmas. You know, wow, look what I can do. I can do this and that and the other thing, and it was kind of fun. I was a good mimic, and I was a good... Uh, I had a good sort of ear for um, intonation, and uh, and it was fun. It was joyful. You know, one of my biggest heroes is Mel Blanc. He was this, the, the voice of all the Looney Tunes and Woody Woodpecker mm. and Barney Rubble. And <laughs> uh, he, I love that, that one guy could be all those characters. And now I view all that, that stuff as just, that's stuff I have in my toolbox if I ever need it. I'm more song-oriented now as I mature as an artist, I think. I just like to be the messenger of a song, you know, and just try to be me. You know, just try to sing mm-hmm. from my heart. And maybe add in a little joy, a little fun thing to keep me interested and to keep the listener engaged as well. Uh, I've always, always strived to um, throw little bits of mm. entertaining things in a performance just because even on the greatest song, it's after a while singing and strumming just can get old. You know what I mean? Mm. So you are not like afraid to sing about personal issues but you're also like not afraid to like really use your voice in like a vulnerable way where you're like imitating the flute, the saxophone, the trumpet, you're scatting, you're yodeling, you're running your vocals through a guitar processor. And a lot of that like I feel like it takes a really special person like a lot of that would seem very silly, but you pull it off in this really lovely, lighthearted, and emotional way. I wanted to hear how you developed that playfulness and the confidence, because I feel like the two go hand in hand to use your voice in such a way to develop that range and like pull the thing off. Hmm. Well, thank you. I never really thought about it too much. I think it was 
what I do with my voice, all the different things I do, comes from, I think, my sense of just following my bliss. Like, hey, this is cool. I like this. It sounds good. And it excites me and seems to be interesting to other people. And um, I think if I had done it like in the early days and people like laughed at me or something or like shamed me for mm. it, I probably would have stopped doing it maybe, which would, would be a big shame. But luckily people didn't. People dug it. And I was like, hey, this is cool. I'll do it more. And uh, of course, being a solo guy, I mean, when you have a whole band behind you, there's not a lot of space to like do little snippets of like, you know, like, because nobody hears it. Because yeah. like the drummer's doing his thing and the bass player's honking away. And so as a solo guy that I've primarily been all these years, you know, with some variations with bands and drummers and trios and stuff, but primarily solo, it has all that space. So like I can just stop playing the guitar and there's nothing. And I can fill that with one little boom. And it's like, cool. And uh, I think it's so I think it's twofold. I think that uh, the joy of doing it and mm. uh, and the venue, the of being solo to have the mm. space to create okay. it in where it can be recognized and heard by me and other people, you know, because like, again, if I was doing it in front of a crowd with a three, four piece band behind me and nobody even heard it, should just go right over their head and I probably would right. never do it again. So, uh. Luckily, no one laughed and said, you suck. And uh, <laughs> um, and on the other hand, you know, I never wanted to be known as a guy who's uh, got all this, you know, these little tricky things that he does. You know what I mean? In the early days, I w probably used it more and leaned on it more. You know, I didn't have the body of songs or the that I have now. So I, I probably did like scatting and vocal trumpet and beatboxing and... Uh, whatever else more in the old days than I do now. Now I rely on the song and I just want whatever I do to be a toolbox. Like, does it mm, serve mm -hmm. the song? You know, most of my songs, you won't hear that stuff. But I like to use it almost like you would use salt and pepper, you know? Not too mm, much, mm -hmm. not too little, just enough to keep you interested. I like that. I love how you're saying that you'd follow your bliss because we were listening to a record the other night and I was just feeling so goofy and just was like doing those little like I mean there was no room in the song whatsoever but it was just funny to like make those vocal noises just oh, to yeah? make somebody cool. just to make somebody laugh and it's you cool did them it, oh yes oh yeah what did you do oh you know just a little like you know I don't do it as well scatting, as you eh? which is well it's there's, there's no good or bad it it's just you do it's it. just different yeah. There's no better or worse. It's just different. Yeah, it's it is you know it's wonderful. So I wanted to know about your um, relationship to practicing. Uh, it seems like your mom, Ginny, Virginia Section, was like very adamant that you practiced since she was paying for lessons. Mm -hmm. um, how did her ins insistence on practicing impact you and impact your playing? Thank you for that question. Um, well, my mother, uh, she raised 12 kids and, you know, they were paying for these. La I took some guitar lessons early on in like sixth grade or something. And so, you know, I think just being a good mom, she was like, hey, you know, just, you know, don't I don't want this to be for nothing. You know, like if you're going to learn, learn. So if, if part of your, you know, because you can't learn guitar if you only play the 30 minutes a week that you're with the teacher. And she knew that. So she said, hey, you got to practice, man. You got to, where's your book? What did the teacher tell you to do? Do that. And so that instilled a, a, an early on a little sense of discipline. Like, you know, I didn't do it like three hours a day, but, you know, for me, I might have spent 10 minutes, like actually practicing something like the C chord to the G7 over and over. I might've done that for a few minutes, but the rest of the time was spent just playing, making things up and being spontaneous Following your bliss. Yeah, even back then. I, I wasn't a real rehearser or a practicer. I, I wish I was, but I'm not. In fact, I wish I practiced early on how to, you know, affix headphones into my ear. But what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> For the listening audience, Martin is uh, struggling with his earpiece. <laughs> I feel like it's like you and like 90% of the population. 
yeah. has that. Has yeah, that I, I don't have those super uh, high-tech uh, pre-molded ones. Yeah, I guess, mm-hmm. it, you know, since we're doing this now, this will be one of those bo- bonuses of COVID. Hey, I got, like, form-fitted earplugs now because I got to do Zoom things. I guess I should. Right? Yeah. Totally. When you moved to Boston, it was because a brother of yours was there to put you up while you figured out like what you wanted to do. And you didn't know at the time that you were like a, quote, singer-songwriter guy and figured that you'd like be in a funk band or something. Mm-hmm. And you're also someone who doesn't like to be labeled into one particular genre like folk. And if this question isn't boring for you, what was it like for you to come into that identity of a singer-songwriter? Were you like kicking and screaming going into it or you're like, yeah, man, this is cool? No, I, I loved it. Um, I tried the sort of funk band, uh, a you know, hair band route. You know, I took some auditions, didn't, didn't get the gig as like a lead singer guy in like a rock band. You would um, have been so good as a hair band singer. Yeah, I mean, I had the hair, you know what I mean? And I could sing, but... Did you have a flying V guitar? I did not have a flying V, um, but I did have a mullet, which I very soon <laughs> cut off, actually. <laughs> but because uh, I actually did, I mean, I sang like for money. And back before I left for Boston, I sang Huey Lewis, Aha, Tears for Fears, Chaka Khan, all that stuff from the 80s. Uh, I got paid. It was great. I was in a, like a lounge band and I was making more money in a weekend than I was making, you know, as a law firm messenger, you know, 40 hours a week. Um, and it Mm. was fun. But, uh, when I got to Boston, you know, I stayed all of, I think about two days, uh, sleeping on my brother's floor until I got an apartment of my own in the same building. And then I I got this job, got a job really quick, like as a, what we would call today as a barista. It was only after getting canned from that job. I guess that the bosses, someone was stealing from the company It wasn't me, but um, so they fired a bunch of people to try to sort of clean house. And they finally did find out who it was. But anyway, as a result of being fired from that job in the back bay of Boston, I had to uh, make money. And I I had been seeing all these singers in the subway. And uh, and I thought, hey, I could do that. And so I started doing it. And did you have any reservations about the subway? No, I thought, wow, how cool is that? Like, probably because... The people I saw performing on the street and on the subway were like world class. They weren't like some bozo with three chords in one song. They were actually mm-hmm. really like talented artists who were, you know, just happened to be playing on the street mm-hmm. and who were more accomplished than I was. So uh, I said, wow, I could do that. And I had maybe a song or two and I learned a few covers and kind of built. And that was sort of how I was born as a singer songwriter. And I had no intent on being a folk artist. Uh, but I think it was a time and place thing. It was Boston in the early 90s. And uh, at my very first gig, you know, John Gorka was there, who was like a folk icon. And he bought two of my tapes, kept one for himself, gave one to his agent. So then I hooked up with his agent, which is probably why I became known as a folk artist, because I was with a folk agent oh, in the beginning. Okay. And it was wonderful, too, because they got me on these great folk avenues, you know, like you know, all those Canadian folk fests and the Newport Folk Fest and sure. um, all these beautiful things and put me on with all those artists, all those folk artists of the 90s, like I was their opening act. And yeah, that's kind of, and I, I was, in the early 90s, I wasn't really into being known as a folk artist because I thought I did more than that. I thought I did more than just uh, sing and play, you know, like mm-hmm. I, um, I was more of a performer and um I, I don't know. I, I've always struggled with what label I am. Even today, mm-hmm. you know, people might say, what do you call that? And I don't know what you call it. I guess today yeah. I call it folk because folk now is Mumford and Sons and Bob Dylan and, uh, you know, Josh Ritter and uh, Taylor Swift. She's not folk. No, she would. I would classify <laughs> her as pop. Even the Bonnie Vare record. Uh, that, I think that's a folk record. The guy from Wisconsin. Well, she's uh, she made a record with like the Bon Iver crew. Oh, and, I didn't uh, know that. I'm not Aaron Dessner of the National. Oh, it's kind of crazy because we play a couple of her songs on sure. Folk Alley. Oh, I'm sure she could be a wonderful folk artist. She can do anything she wants. 
It's also incredible to think about um, this is getting a, a little bit in the in the weeds of the the Boston world, but like the infrastructure of folk music in the eighties and nineties in Boston is like pretty incredible. Like the Boston Globe had not one but two folk writers. Yeah, you know, each newspaper had their own folk writer. Yeah. It was wild. And you had multiple radio stations that would play artists like myself, who were unsigned. You know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. He had the colleges that would also have papers and little stations of their own. Uh, you had the venues like Passim and the Black Rose and the Blackthorn Tavern and the, all these folk rooms. Yeah, mm-hmm. you nailed it when you said infrastructure. There, it's, it's funny, I don't see that anymore. I don't even know if it's still in Boston anymore, but... Yeah, I mean, it's like Passim is around. Yep. And that's... Yeah. And that was hard. Actually, Passim's was hard to get into back then. You know, that was like, you know, that was like, I tried my ass off to get into that room. And I had to like, just keep trying and trying and get other people to chirp about me and show them, you know, what the Boston Globe wrote. And finally, he says like, all right, I'll put Martin on the bill. It's Bob Donlin, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah. (laughs) It was kind of funny. But yeah, that I mean, that was room like that. All the folk stars of the day would do like four shows there. They would do like two Sunday, two Friday, two Saturday, and then one matinee uh, Sunday, which was broadcast on WERS. And so you had oh, to be yeah. able to sell, you know, like 500 tickets to do that. Oh, and, I see. Uh, okay. Yeah. Five shows at Passim's is 500 tickets. And... So they had Sean Colvin and John Hyatt and uh, John Cork and Greg Brown and uh, all these, you know, folk artists and Bill Morrissey and uh, and Garnet Rogers. I saw all these people there. Did you ever do a run like that at Passim? And and we, what do you prefer? Do you prefer just playing one night and getting out of town, or really like leaning in for a five night stay? Uh, I like both. I I like the old school thing about doing multiple shows because you get that intimacy um mm-hmm. i'm doing it like i'll probably do it in minneapolis where i do two shows and two shows but i enjoyed it back then i think i was one of the last performers to do that because it was the end of the bob Donnellan era and i think mm-hmm. I, I did the two friday two saturday and the matinee sunday with the rs broadcasting it and i loved it mm. i thought it was great and whenever I do it now, in fact, I just, in COVID, it's, we did it a lot because all the shows had to be so, you know, small. They could only be like 100 or 200 people. Uh-huh. So I did, I did multiples in like Vail and Boulder and uh, New Hampshire and all over the place in New York City. And I enjoy it. I just, and it challenges me to, hey, there's people who probably come to both shows. So I got to, I can't just like do the same show. Yeah, I pay attention to really pulling out the deep tracks and so that I can mm-hmm. fill up two shows worth of, of music. I want to go back to getting fired from that cafe job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read, so last time we talked, you were wondering where this quote came from, and it came from the Boston Phoenix. You said you were fired from your cafe job because you said, I basically hate work. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. There is Which, that. that I think that's so funny because you have had to work very hard to develop your style, write your songs, tour, maintain this extremely dedicated fan base. So how do you relate to what you do in terms of work? I guess the caveat on I hate to work, as true as that is, the caveat would be I hate to work in jobs that aren't music related. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Although now that I've grown up a bit, you know, I could spread that out to, you know, like... I, I actually do enjoy other things. You know, I have passions like whether it's certain foods or coffee or antiques or history. You know, I could work in those lines, too, if I had to pretty happily now that I've mm-hmm. grown up and I've had, you know, I've got more interests. I've got a family and kids and I've been around the world. And so, you know, at the time I was referring to work as the jobs that I had, which were, you know, landscaping and painting and and, and pouring coffee and, you know, dealing with customers. I, I hated that mm-hmm. at the time. And so I was overjoyed when I was making more money singing songs in a subway station at 7 a.m. So can you talk about, like, in the subway station performing, um, you might be familiar with the singer Meg Hutchinson. Sure, she's wonderful. 
she also spent some time in the subway and mm-hmm. right around that time we were like pretty close friends and she would tell me about like how it physically actually was like the the hard can you talk about your experience because her sounded like very difficult like hardships hmm. mine i didn't yeah i the well the hardships i ran into were uh in the early days before we fought uh city hall and won our like right to be there the cops would shut us down like we'd be out there and because i had an amplifier i couldn't play so my first amendment rights didn't matter uh, I wasn't loud. It's just that the instrument that I played needed an amplifier. It was a Stratocaster. So without that, mm-hmm. you're not really going to be heard. Um, the hardships, yeah. I, I I think that's the only... I didn't have... You know, being a woman alone, I could imagine you'd be more uh, open to, you know, whatever comes your way in anywhere in the world. But... Um, I'd also think, like, the air down there is, like, pretty tough on you. Oh, yeah. I definitely, you know, you come home and blow your nose and, you know. That's what she was talking yeah, about. Yeah. Being being down in the subway for, it was like four-hour shifts, you know. And we had shifts, too. Like, you would go to Harvard Square in the morning and do the flip. And the winner would get the first choice, and that'd be in the morning commute. Second would be the middle of the day, and the late would be the, the commute going the other way. Oh, so that's like a four-hour cool. gig. But again, you know, I don't think there was any, I hope there wasn't asbestos down there. You know what I mean? But right. nothing, nothing for me personally too hardship, but. Her reaction was like, well, I guess my nose is doing what it's supposed to do. Like yeah. filtering the, the Filtering the stuff. air. Yeah, <laughs> totally. But yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for every moment, you know, whether it was under the ground or above the ground in Harvard Square on a hot mm. Saturday night. The tactics that you were using uh, on the streets of Boston, you're trying to get people's attention and there's like different things you would do, um, like strategically set up in a location so more people would come and watch you. Um, You would uh, encourage audience participation. You would do that beautiful stuff you do with your voice. Um, The tactics that you were using, especially like making the audience part of the show, were like so brilliant in creating a community of listeners who felt like they were like part of something big. And you can still feel it when you go to a Martin Sexton show, like you create an atmosphere where people feel connected. Um, How have you come to realize over your career, like how big and special and important that is for people and for yourself? I definitely appreciate um, that about my work is that I understand uh, that people are listening and they're paying attention and like they're paying money to hear me sing. And so they must be there for a reason. And when they get to my show, they're invited to be part of the show, you know, somewhere in the first 10 minutes or maybe in the first tune, I'm going to shout out something and they're going to be expected to, or, you know, invited Mm. to shout back. And I think that endears people to the singer if they are, they're like not just the audience watching you. Now they're kind of in the show with you. They become more of your comrade of sorts, uh, your your fellow show person. Oftentimes I'll be on stage and the audience will be singing so beautifully that I'll just stop the song. And I'm like, oh, my God, I got to pay my 45 bucks to get in here to see this show. It's like <laughs> I'm like the That's audience cool. of one. And this is the the, <laughs> the 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 cast of many, you know, and uh, that's most nights are like that, like. You know, if it's just a couple hundred people or a thousand people or a couple thousand people, it's like church. And I think people connect with things like church, even if they're not religious, just to have people, Mm -hmm. human beings breathing beside you, shouting beside you, responding, singing in harmony with you. It's um, I think it's almost like cheating in a way, like it's one great technique to get people engaged in what you're doing. And uh, I don't mean to minimize it because I think there's a element of uh, holiness in it. Um, mm. But it certainly works uh, like a good technique does. Um, and it holds them, too, because now they're invested. So after 15 minutes, they're not looking at their watch. Right. And in fact, they're wanting more. With writing, um, you're a seasoned enough writer where you have the muscle, you have the technique down. But it's hard work for you to write a song, which is too bad for someone who hates work. Um, mm-hmm. 
And you talk about that pure inspiration that'll like hit you at 2 a.m. Can you talk more about what that feels like when the inspiration hits, like how you capture and how you relate to that inspiration? Hmm. I forget who said it. Might have been Paul Simon or somebody said, you know, songwriting is, I don't know, 5% inspiration and 95% perspiration. <laughs> and uh, I, I buy that because I'll get a great idea when I'm out driving on the highway and I say I hate work, but I don't mind driving 12 hours to a show. You know what I mean? <laughs> or uh, or setting up and sound checking and, and doing a two shows in a night and a Zoom concert in between and then driving four hours to get to Wichita. Like, I'll do that. Like So I must enjoy that work somewhat. But, um, <laughs> but back to the question, um, when I get a good idea riding out on the highway or something, um, I try to, to capture it somehow. Like... You always think you're going to remember it the next day, and I never do. So, you know, now we have the smartphones, so we can, I can hit that thing, and I've got like a thousand little baby songs on it, which is kind of a rabbit hole in itself. But I used to have the old Panasonic dictaphone with a little mini cassette in it. That's, uh, that's how I captured a bunch of decent song ideas in the old days. Uh, I think it's important to catch them, or if, in a perfect scenario, if you happen to be sitting down with a guitar and some paper, to, 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 to finish it then and there. I remember hearing George Harrison once in an interview say, you know, always try to finish it right then. And uh, sometimes I take that advice and sometimes I don't. But I don't know. Songs, sometimes they're gifts from the universe and sometimes they're little projects that you have to finish. Nice. You released your second and full-length albums on Atlantic in 1998 and 2000, which was like such a weird time in the music industry. It was like right after the Telecom Act of 1996, right before Napster. So there's like this little pocket of transition. And you actually figured out that you'd do much better on your own. So you left Atlantic Records, sounds like in the nicest way possible. Mm -hmm. And you started your own kitchen table records. How do you equate your major label experience with other peers at the time who may have some nightmare stories? And how do you reflect on that like general weirdness in the industry yeah. then? Yeah, it's funny. I knew a lot of artists who were kind of stuck with their deals. Like they got signed and everyone was, was gung-ho and they recorded a record and they had it in the can ready to release. And then their A&R person got canned or somebody got fired and then they're just stuck out in, 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 the, in, this, in the nowhere zone of the label Mm. Uh, and they can't just go out and make another record because they're beholden contractually to that label. Like, I've seen that happen. I was like, oh, my. And that sucks. And I was just, I feel lucky, I guess, that nothing like that ever happened to me. And, you know, I, I also, I took a lot of uh, great experience from being on Atlantic, you know. I mean, A, it was just a dream come true. It's what I always wanted, you know. Um, I didn't even know what an independent label was growing up. To me, all I knew was you know, was sure. uh, Columbia and Atlantic and, and, and Motown, and, you know. And um, so to be signed by the guy, you know, who signed Ray Charles and Led Zeppelin mm. and Aretha Franklin and the Rolling Stones was like, whoa, yay, and it was just awesome. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he, and he came to see me at CBGB's and he kissed me on both cheeks and it was beautiful, Ahmed Erdogan. And, um, and he Legend. was a really legendary guy and he was a very cool guy. Uh, he was at the label when I signed with them. He had an office there. And um, so it was a dream come true. And they gave me the budget to make the records I want. They didn't tell me who I had to produce or what songs I couldn't sing or write or whatever. It was actually a great experience. Um, you know, it helped me sort of up a few steps on the ladder. You know, it didn't break me into, mm -hmm. you know, world fame. Um, but it... Um, it just got me in other avenues that would have been harder otherwise. Yeah. And so then but when the time came, I, I knew in that time indie was the way to go. I'm glad I did, too, because the year after I left, the axe came down at a lot of labels. A lot of artists were, were, were let go. And, um, and putting out Live Wide Open was my double live record. And that was the yeah. that was my Great means record. of making. Thank you. My That was my means of making my own bank of which to use to then fund. Uh, future albums because it takes a mm. lot of damn money to not only record a record but you got to pay a publicist you got to pay a radio guy you got to pay marketing people 
Um, you got to make the record, which is studio time and players and producers. And, you know, it's a lot of bread. And so um, to have that bread made on my own, and I took a big tip from Ms. Ani DeFranco in that regard. Mm. Um, to do, She was a big power of example, like someone, oh, wow, she can do it. She's doing it. I'll do it. So if you can come up with your bread or people to back you or whatever it takes, you, you're not beholden to some multinational corporation. Uh, and I love that. And I actually sold more tickets, got more uh, radio play, got more TV and film placement, uh, and even more press uh, as an indie guy since I left right. them. It's like Atlantic grease the wheels yeah. for you. Yeah, you know, because yeah. I was, uh, I mean, I had accomplished the groundwork I had put out in the journey and... And that got me sort of in the coffee house world. And then I did Black Sheep and that got me across America and Canada. And mm. so I'd laid that groundwork. So when I showed up in Ann Arbor, you know, the show was actually sold out. It wasn't my Atlantic record that sold those tickets. It was the groundwork I laid. Right. Um, so it was a yeah, nice sort of stepping stones and then back to Indy. And that's where I've been ever since. know if I particularly have a question about this, but uh, we did talk about it last time, and I just think it's hilarious that like right around that time, Billboard magazine calls you the finest new male singer-songwriter of recent memory, which it's like, it's just pretty funny because, you know, nowadays you're not used to seeing that. You're, it's usually like female singer-songwriter or female guitarist, um, and it seems like thinking about that time the last time we talked, you were saying, well, there were mostly women making music back then. Yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a hard time getting signed because I was a male. Every every year in our person said, hey, man, if you were female, I could have signed you last year. Because they all had Lisa Loeb and Tracy Chapman and Jewel and Alanis Morissette. And all these women were, it was in vogue to sign women uh, in the late 90s or mid to late 90s. And so it was actually, it's a beautiful thing. Um, you know, the woman, the my A&R person was a woman. Uh, the head of most of the departments at Atlantic were women. The top-selling artists on Atlantic were women. Uh, mm. My manager was a woman. Uh, I think my one of my agents at the time was a woman. So there's lots, and this is going back 22 years. So a mm -hmm. lot of good strides, I think, had been made even by then. So it seems like we, we kind of are riding the ship with in that regard, seems like, in my own personal view. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, Kitchen Table Records, that's the name of your label, and you reference kitchen tables and songs pretty consistently and have talked about that being a place where you write. What does the kitchen table mean to you and your songs? Uh, well, in the song Happy, the kitchen table, honey, just might break to the sound of you and I rocking our bodies. Uh, wow. That's the kitchen table being used in a sort of, <laughs> in you know, pro-creative way. You're not creating food. You're like creating babies. But the kitchen table to me is where it's happening. You know, it's where the party always ends. It's where the food is, you know, presented and, and prepared. It's where, for me, songs are written. It's where uh, uh, difficult conversations are had or joyful moments are shared over a cup of coffee. So for me, the kitchen table is almost like a holy place. It's a creative place. It's a working place. It's a presenting place. It's sort of everything. And so my manager at the time, you know, we'd get offers from like, you know, to play in some guy's garage and, and hang out with him and, and, and his dogs, you know. And, and my manager would be like, oh, my God, come on. This is so kitchen table. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like uh, so that I kind of used that like to name my label. Because I had such reverence for the kitchen table and because my manager at the time used it almost in a, a negative connotation. You know, if something yeah. was kitchen table, it was uh, Bush League. You know what I mean? Right, right. But, That's uh, funny. So I just kind of turned it around. Uh, your mom sadly died in 2018 and you did a really beautiful TED Talk shortly after that. And it sounds like it was a really uh, beautiful passing, if if that's okay to say. Like all, all the siblings were there and it sounds like before she passed, she kind of like uh, scolded everyone to, to not argue with each other. Uh, and then when she did pass, you all sang Amazing Grace. 
Um, how did her passing change the way you think about death and what maybe surprised you about that experience? Hmm. I guess what surprised me about it was uh, the lightheartedness of it and the, the actual uh, sense of joy even of it um, amidst, uh, you know, the, the tragic sadness of losing your mother. Um, just knowing that she died in her bed, you know, at the age of 87, um, with every one of her 12 kids around her as she took her last breath, it just seemed like, wow, that's, that's a beautiful way to go. As much of a loss it is to us, it just seemed, uh, like a blessing of sorts. Like, you know, Mm. everybody's got to go and, and not everyone gets to go in that fashion. Unfortunately, that's so, I mean, I think in the way she left us, that's, it's rare, you know, that's, that's a, yeah. Almost like winning the lottery when you can go with all your kids around you, all your kids are alive, um, all, you know what I mean, uh, healthy and uh, by your side, in your own bed. You know, just of all the ways to go, I just thought, wow, that was a, I was grateful for that. And yeah. um, it gave me a sense of comfort uh, to know that that can happen and a little inspiration and, and give me hope too that maybe, you know, maybe more of us can 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 go out in style like that. Hmm. All right. 2020 vision is the new EP. Uh, and I feel like maybe we could start talking about this EP with you telling me about this tree house. Oh, it's a beautiful little A-frame made uh, almost exclusively of old bits from other, you know, construction jobs and dumpster dives and, uh, otherwise unusable parts. It had been, all the stuff has been laying around in the yard for a long time. And my boy and I, Shane, for years, we'd always say, hey, this is the year we're going to do it, you know? Summer vacation, yay, we're going to build the treehouse. And then before you know it, it's September, and another year goes by. And that happened like four summers. And it was that COVID summer that was that universal kick in the pants made everything really real and <laughs> in fact and including like okay this is when you actually get real doing that thing you've been talking about doing or as my southern friends say fixing to i've been fixing <laughs> to build this tree house for years so okay you know what we already waxed the floors we already cleaned the closets we cut each other's hair we took a bunch of bike rides it's time to get that scrap wood and the nails and get the hammer out and actually do this thing so we drew it on paper and we did it together, which was this gift, you know, to be that engaged with my, you know, 12-year-old son on a project. And to move forward with your kid, is it's a beautiful experience. And so now we have this tangible asset, you know, in our yard that we can hang out in. And, and it's just almost like a testament to uh, the power of love and hope and uh, uh, and perseverance and and taking old bits that were otherwise useless and making them into something that's beautiful and useful. Mm. Um, When we finished it, and it took a while to finish because I'm not a carpenter, but I looked things up. I don't know how to roof a house because I put on shingles that I had laying in the yard from when we built our house years ago. And um, we figured it out. And luckily I didn't get hurt or fall off a ladder or something. But uh, when we were done, I grabbed the old Gibson and uh, this song kind of presented itself to me and the idea of the song, you know, in the summer of 2020, I was blah, 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 blah. And yeah, that's a cool song. I didn't have a chorus or anything, but later on we were riding bikes down our dirt road for miles and I was like, hold on, do what you got, mm, do what it is, not what is not, hold on. And, and I was like, oh my God, that's the chorus. And I rushed home because I I kept singing it over and over in my head because I didn't want to forget. I didn't have a dictaphone on me. And, and so uh, that's how that song was presented. It's all about holding on to the real things in my life. Mm. It, not, not the shite that's like fashionable or about money or success or, you know, how's my hair. It's hold on to your family, the friends, the time that you can spend, you know, with loved ones. You know, Mm. not the time to spend with people you're obligated to spend time with, but, you know, to follow that bliss, to follow that joy. And uh, that's the story of Hold On. It's amazing. It all came out of the treehouse. It did. Um, 
Calling on America, a song on the EP, uh, this is something you've talked about many times before 2020, unity. You said, ever since I was singing in the streets of Harvard Square way back in the 90s, I've always aimed to bring unity with my music. So how has your message of unity weathered during this like immense time of division and what has been your experience with the act of unity? Well, my mission statement I put out years ago was my aim is to bring unity using the power of music to bring people together of all walks of life. And it's weathered well to answer the question. Calling on America is a sort of a cry out to say, hey, let's remember, you know, we're all the children of Mother Earth, of Father Sky, you know, no matter where we come from, who we sleep with, how we vote. We're, you know what I mean? We are, we have the same needs. And I always want to remind people, you know, coming from my family, we were not like all one stripe. I mean, we had Reaganite Republicans and Jimmy Carter Democrats, and we were always bickering at the dinner table, you know what I mean? But by the end of supper, we always remembered that we're family. And so we had a certain level of uh, sort of unspoken uh, respect for one another, even though we disagreed. Mm. And I've carried that. I grew up with that. So I'm used to, you know, all different opinions of people bickering, but still getting along and, you know, getting to the next level of of life and not, you know, not beating people or or trying to demolish people because Mm -hmm. I disagree with them. I, I don't believe in that. So Calling on America is all about through the years I've been everywhere and I personally... It's like this anecdotal view. I, I see people of all colors and stripes uh, and whatever getting along. I see generosity. I see goodness. And, you know, I do see some of the, the bad stuff, too. But mostly I see the good. But when I turn on the TV, it's like just it's almost like if you were on Mars, if you were a Martian and you tuned in only to the television, to the major networks. It's like, wow, you would think Earthlings just all of them just hate each other. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. and uh, there's so much division. Like you would think, wow, these, these people better get their act together and remember that they're really all, that to me, they all look alike. I mean, yeah, they have different colors and they have different loves and likes and, but they're humans, you know, and, you you know, to a Martian's perspective, they'd, we'd probably probably kind of look the same because we are all the same. We, you know what I mean? We all have the same needs. And um, so calling on America is just a reminder that, hey, man. We're, we're all in this together. Um, and, you know, I don't know what else to say. It's like, I just want people to get along. You know, I want people to love one another. I want people to accept one another. I mean, I really appreciate when I can have a spirited debate with someone and disagree on a topic. But by the end of it, come to a place where, you know, but we st- we're still friends. You know, we're still, we still have a certain amount of respect for one another, even though we disagree on whatever topic. Can you dig it? Yeah, I feel like that kind of stuff comes with practice and and wisdom, you know. Mm. Yeah, I don't believe in shouting people down. I don't believe that. You can get very passionate and bent out of shape. Yeah. I remember, like, arguing with people about music in high school, you know, just a, as, like, a semi-controversial topic where, you know, somebody would say they didn't like a band and it just get would, would immediately get so red-hot upset Oh, yeah. And that, yeah, that just doesn't, that's just not the way that you handle things, I guess. Yeah. Totally. Beatles versus Stones. Wouldn't that be great if all we argued about it was like, who's better, the Beatles or the Stones? (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Or who's a better guitarist, Hendrix or Jimmy Page? Or Clapton or Jeff Beck or Peter Frampton or uh, uh, John Mayer? Who's best? Right. All these things that like (laughs) kind of matter, but not really. Yeah. Um, Okay. Sobriety. Penny from the Land of Plenty addresses the opioid epidemic particularly prevalent during the pandemic, and you are a sober person. Would you talk about your path with sobriety? You've said, I've had many experiences with 12-step programs. How did your life change when you made the choice to be sober? Well, help me get my head out of my ass, for one. And it, it was time to grow up, you know? It was time to put on the jean jacket and get to work a yeah. How old were you? Human. It's nineteen actually when I got sober, which is wow. young in the in the scheme of things. But yeah, I had seen enough, and you know, I just uh, I had been 
to enough, I, I'd heard enough things I couldn't help but identify. So, um, yeah, it was, again, one of those universal kicks in the pants. And uh, it's never what I want. It's funny how the best things that have ever happened to me are very rarely what I actually want. You know what I mean? Like, like I didn't want to get fired from my job. I didn't want to fail the real estate exam in Syracuse. You know, I didn't want to lose that first girlfriend. You know what I mean? Uh, I didn't want to have to get sober. But all these things are the best things that ever happened to me. And, um, mm. you know, I am available for life now. You know, it's not like I got a free ride and I can't pat myself on the back for being sober. I just, uh, I all I got now is I got hope. And I got a good work ethic when it comes to my work. And I and I show up. I think 90% of life, I think, is showing up. Mm. Uh, bring the ass and the mind will follow. I always like that one because oftentimes <laughs> I'll be just, I don't want to freaking do this thing. And like, <sighs> but I just drag my ass. You know what I mean? And then the yeah. mind follows. You know what I mean? And so if you want to change your mind, move your ass. And that's at least my motto. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh you know, I didn't want to get up at 6.30 a.m. to get make it to Harvard Square Station by 7, you know, to try to get the good slot, you know. But so sobriety has, has been a wonderful gift. And uh, these days, man, I recommend it because there's too many people dying, too many young people dying. You know, yeah. Penny from the Land of Plenty is, I, I put it on the record because I thought we need to put out more music that and, and literature and movies and whatever that speaks to um addiction because mm -hmm. it's a freaking pandemic in itself. I mean, 60,000 young people a year are dying from opioids alone. And I just can't sit by idly and just not say anything about that. Um, and so I don't want to preach. I don't want to tell anyone what to do, but I do want to share my experience and my strength and my hope. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I'm trying to do with Penny from the Land of Plenty and all my songs, really. All right, Marty, let's do the lightning round, and then I'll let you go. Mm -hmm. All right, here we go. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? First song I learned on the guitar was probably um, a Sweet Home Alabama. Uh, what is your karaoke song? Ooh, tough one. I, it's funny, I don't do karaoke, so I don't know. I, I honestly don't know if I could... It's funny, <laughs> I just don't... I can't even... I guess I should be more of a sport. I, I'm trying to think, like... <laughs> What, this uh, is actually a very common answer and a very acceptable answer. People where like, you just don't, do I, I don't yeah. know, because I guess don't if, know. Um, if I think about it, I'm trying to picture myself hanging out, doing karaoke, um, and I'm singing a tune, and it is Stairway to Heaven. Okay. <laughs> Going all in. Great. <laughs> Dogs or cats or something else? Dogs. What is your coffee order? Colombian black. First celebrity crush? Uh, Farrah Fawcett. Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Ooh, that's a tough one, too. I guess Dave Matthews, because like, he wasn't only just nice to my face, but he actually introduces. I was supporting him on a tour, and he comes out and introduces the opening act, which I've never seen any headliner do. Oh, wow. Do. Yeah. That's great. Dave. Uh... First album you bought with your own money? That would be the Beatles, uh, 1967 to 1970, the Blue Album. Okay, now the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? For me, Beatles. What was your first concert? Say the Beatles. Beatlemania. Beatle oh, <laughs> wow, you are yeah. not kidding. Yeah. Uh, okay, flying or invisibility? Uh, I guess fly. Star Trek or Star Wars? Not into either of them, but if I had <laughs> to sit to down and watch one, <laughs> I guess, uh, you know what? I don't like either of them. I, I don't hate them. I just, uh, yeah. I actually didn't like Star Wars when I was a kid. We actually got out of school to see it, and I was bored. And Trek, wow. you know, I guess I, I appreciate the amazing, like, futuristic uh, prophecy of uh, Star Trek. I guess Star mm -hmm. Trek, then, for that reason. That's what I would suspect. Yeah. Okay. Last one. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? The Adirondack Mountains, New York State, where I am right now. Where you are right now. Mm -hmm. Fine answer. 
All right, Martin Sexton, thank you so much for talking to me today. It was just a real pleasure. I appreciate you, Cindy. Just keep telling the good word. Basic Folk This Week, produced by John Nungesser. Our music composed by Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople. I'm your host, Cindy House. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network, and you can find us wherever you get podcasts and at our website, basicfolk.com. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. Very good. Okay, I'll talk to you next time. Mm, bye.